is Danish Dynamite, the Superliga podcast, brought to you by footballindenmark.com. Welcome to Danish Dynamite. We're on episode 15 now, and I read a statistic a few weeks back that said that the vast majority of podcasts don't make it to 20 episodes. So we still got that milestone to hit, but uh, things are things are going strong. Sorry I missed last week's show. Things got in the way. When a podcast is essentially a one-man operation in terms of recording, scheduling, editing, producing, all of that stuff, it, it does mean that when work and family and those other priorities intervene, it does make it difficult to do a show. So forgive me for, for no show last week. I think that Trying to keep it on a one-week cadence is the is the plan. There will obviously be hiccups in that, but uh, let's let, let's try keep it going. But we've got so much to reflect on, and I'm kind of glad that the international break was here to give us this chance to to just reflect on what was a pretty crazy round 22 in the Superliga. On today's show, I've got a very special guest coming up in the second part. But for this first part, I just thought I'd recap a little bit and and talk about what happened in round 22 and and how that's affected the rest of the season because we're obviously in this situation where after 22 games the the league splits into two parts and throws up a whole bunch of new storylines so there was the the last minute scramble with two places still available going into round 22 and a lot of drama at both ends of the table I guess if we if we look at the games, it probably makes sense to start with the most dramatic. And it's hard to call which is the most dramatic, actually. But I'm going to start in Silkeborg, where, where both Silkeborg and FC Michelin were in with a shout of, of reaching the top six. And it was a thrilling game. Six goals in the end, three all. It finished back and forth. I think the, the standout goal was fantastic break from Gustav Isaacson and finished really coolly on his left foot. And that goal really highlighted what clinical finishing he's had recently. Of course, there was injury time drama when FC Michelin scored to make it 4-3. And that goal would have taken them into the championship group. So that was a a really pivotal moment for them. And the goal was ruled out for offside. It was a correct decision, but not much in it. And with that goal being chalked off, both teams had to settle for a point. A point which suited neither team, really, because it places both of them because of the other results in the the bottom half of the table. So both Silkeborg, last year's bronze medal winners, and FC Michelin, last year's silver medal winners, head into the relegation group for the remainder of the season. And of course, FC Michelin parted ways with Albert Capellas, a manager who came in partway through the season uh, to replace Bo Henriksen and never really got FC Michelin firing. You know, I I don't think he, I didn't notice a discernible style. I didn't notice an uptick in their their fortunes. They were still a team who one week could look like world beaters and the next week could look terrible. And they parted ways with him. He's been replaced by Rana's manager, Thomas Thomasberg, who's done some fantastic work there in recent years. And I think it's as close to a, a safe pair of hands as they can get. You know, the guy knows the league very well. He's performed, or he's outperformed with a, a Rana's squad that has never really had a huge amount of money to spend. Whether he's a manager who can take them back to the days of, you know, Champions League group stages and being favourites for the title, I'm not sure. Uh, he he might very well be able to, but I think what he is almost certainly going to be able to do is get more from the group that he's got. You know, there's undoubted talent in that that Michelin squad, and I just don't feel that Capellas was getting the best out of it. I think that having ended up in the relegation group, the focus is going to be on finishing seventh and and trying to finish strong. And you know, seventh place gets you a spot in that European playoff. So there's still a chance that this season can be salvaged, but I think that he's got to hit the ground running. 
going into the games uh, this coming weekend. But that game was yeah incredibly dramatic and uh, and finished three three. There was more late drama over in Farum where FC Norgeland were hosting Bromby, who themselves were you know looking to to get a place in the in the top six. FC Norgeland, of course have been pegged back by FC Copenhagen and so really needed to to come away from this game with three points if they wanted to end the round in top spot. Bromby actually took the lead when Kian Hansen and Andreas Hansen, can't make another Hansen joke, surely, uh, but when they collided and it left the goal wide open for, for Hakon Evian to score the opener and they went into half time with the score 1-0 to Bromby. And I think this was a real big test for FC Norgeland, you know, coming into the second half, 1-0 down. I don't know if they checked the scores, but if they had, they'd have seen that FC Copenhagen were leading. You know, all these games were, were played at the same time. So, you know, they went into that second half and scored an extraordinary equaliser through Ernest Nuama. You know, this is a guy who I've talked about plenty on the podcast, but he is really going places. He just took the game by the scruff of the neck. It was a, a sort of Arjen Robin-esque finish from outside the area, curled it into the corner, incredible goal there was then in the 88th minute a penalty awarded thanks to thanks to VAR I'm sure that you've seen it by now but Mads Hermanson made quite incredible triple save you know, he saved the penalty from Nuama and then two follow-ups and those saves were so good that Bromby actually made a, a t-shirt of the saves which got a bit of flack on social media given the, the ultimate result in the game but I think that was a, a real real standout moment for him uh, as one of the brightest young young talents in in the league and you know, perhaps one of the brightest goalkeeping talents Denmark have produced for some time. With Nuwama missing that penalty or having the penalty saved in the 88th minute, his head could have very justifiably gone down. You know, the game was petering out. Instead, he he took the ball in injury time, slalomed through the, the midfield and the defence and absolutely smashed it with his left foot so hard that even with a strong hand from Hermanson, he couldn't keep it out. And that goal gave FC Norgeland the win. And I think at the end of the season, if Norgeland go on to win the league, which is still very much undecided, uh, that you know the bookies have FC Copenhagen as big favourites still. But if they go on and win it, I think people will look back on that goal as being absolutely pivotal to come back from 1-0 down against a team like Bromby. And having missed the penalty in the 80th minute, I think that can't overestimate how important that is, both from a points perspective, but also from a, a mentality perspective. Moving on from there, there was a, a game in Copenhagen that was really pivotal for the title race. It was FC Copenhagen against uh, Viborg, who obviously sat in third. And there were huge ramifications if Viborg could get something from this. The visitors shot themselves in the foot with the first goal. Lucas Lund Pedersen playing a, a careless pass out from the back and just gifting it to Haraldsson. He still had to chip the keeper. It still required a cool head. But really, FC Copenhagen were gifted that first goal. Then the second goal, there was some smart work from Mohamed Darami down the left. He fired in a shot, which I'm almost certain that was a cross. If you guys disagree, let me know. But it looked like a cross that no one got on the end of. And it actually deceived the goalkeeper and went in off the post. And, you know, a lovely goal. If he meant it, huge kudos to him. I'm not sure he did. But anyway, there it was. Mortimer managed to get a goal back for Viborg with 20 minutes to go. And you did wonder, could this be the shot in the arm for them to, to go on and, and claim a point or better? But really, after that, the chances were were few and far between I think they had one more chance from a, a corner but there was nothing else to, to write home about really and, and FC Copenhagen came away with the win a win that keeps them hot on the heels of, of FC Norgeland and it's going to be fascinating with those two teams playing each other a couple of times before the end of the season what's going to what's going to happen there but yeah three very dramatic games to kick things off 
The other games were less dramatic, shall I say. AGF got a 1-0 win against Obi. When I tell you the goal was from a towering header, is it any surprise that it was Patrick Mortensen? He's on some incredible form at the moment. And yeah, he's really been responsible for a number of uh, a number of key goals for, for AGF that, that, have, that have won the points for them. And yeah, Obi look a little bit in disarray at the moment and, and uh, AGF were able to assert their dominance. Lungby were, again, slightly unlucky not to not to get the win. They were playing Horsens in a, a game that neither team could really afford to lose. It finished one all. There was a, a big defensive blunder by Horsens to put Finn Bogerson in for the opener for, for Lungby. Aaron Sigurdarsson, I don't know if this reference will will resonate, but there's a famous miss by uh, by Ronnie Rosenthal when he was playing for Liverpool. And it's, it's often held up as the worst miss of all time. Aaron Sigurdarsson had a, a chance. It w- maybe wasn't quite as, as much of a clanger, but it wasn't far off. Uh, he missed a, a completely open goal for, for Horsens. And you wondered if that was their, their chance gone. But they kept on going uh, and got a goal to take one all. And that result doesn't really help either team. But as I said, neither could lose. Uh, and so to come away with a, with a point keeps hopes alive for, for both teams. Finally, in Alborg, it was Obi against Ranners and what proved to be the final game for Alborg manager Eric Hamron. They went down 1-0 at home to to Ranners, a a goal from Copland that that squirmed under Theo Sander. Perhaps he could have done a little bit better there. Nicholas Hellenius had the ball in the net. It got ruled out correctly for offside, but they signed him in January. He was supposed to be the the guy who got the goals for them to keep them up and it, it just really hasn't happened for him. I think, you know, if you had to find some encouragement for Alborg, I'd say in the second half, they, they really came back into it. And if it wasn't for an inspired performance by Patrick Carlgren, I wonder if they wouldn't have, have come away from that with a point or more. But as it happened, they lost again. Lungby are now ahead of them in the table by a point. And yeah, things don't look good for them. Something I've been saying almost every week, something's got to change. But maybe now in the relegation group, without the six strongest teams to play, Maybe that will help them. Maybe a change of manager will also give them a bit of a new manager bounce. Eric Hamrin was another manager who came in midway through the season and like Albert Capellas, I don't think really managed to get a a tune out of the team. It really felt like he wasn't perhaps connecting with the players. There was a a period of time where where certain players were being frozen out. Alan Souza is unquestionably the most dangerous player Alborg have and he went weeks at a time, sat on the bench or, or being brought on for a few minutes at a time. It was kind of puzzling. So as it stands, Alborg uh, are still only eight points away from safety. So it's not insurmountable, but they're like Lungby, they're going to have to start picking up some wins now that they're playing uh, in the relegation group. And, you know, Silkeborg and FC Michelin are not going to be easy opponents for, the, for these relegation group teams. It's just a question of whether uh, whether Horsens get sucked into the relegation race, because uh, I think Obi with 28 points and a 12 point gap, I think they're, they're safe. For me, it's a, a three-horse race for relegation. And yeah, it looks like it could get quite tasty. So that was how round 22 went down. I have to say it was really exciting having all the games at the same time and seeing things move in real time. I know that that's something that only happens a couple of times in the season. But uh, yeah, that was great entertainment. I think I've said before, I quite enjoy this relegation group, championship group split. I know that it wasn't always how the league was set up. It did used to be a more traditional league system. And I think that what that creates is that towards the end of the season, you get these mid-table teams who aren't getting relegated, aren't 
pushing for Europe. And so you get a lot of dead fixtures. And I think that what the championship group and the, the relegation group does is it, it may be artificially so, but it creates drama throughout the season. And the fact that seventh place is now so desirable for the relegation group teams. You know, we saw, for example, Viborg finished seventh last season, won the playoff against Alborg and had this amazing experience in Europe, you know, where they got to play against West Ham in London. And it was really an incredible experience for the fans and the players alike. So that carrot is there. And I would say that for Obi, for FC Michelin and for Silkeborg, that's going to be an amazing battle. Similarly, in the top six, a lot still undecided. You know, the title race is still top three are only divided by six points. And as we've seen in, in years gone by, things move quite quickly because you get effectively six pointers almost every weekend. So lots to look forward to. And it all kicks off this week. In fact, on Friday, we've got Odense playing FC Michelin on Friday, which should be interesting to see how Thomas Berg sets up the team, what 11 he goes with to start with and, and what changes he rings there. I'm going to put it on record. I, I, I'm wondering whether he goes for Patrick Carlgren this uh, this summer as a transfer. I uh, haven't been convinced by Jonas Losel. He got a one-game ban for his post-match interview. So it sh- should be Elias Olofsson in goal for, for FC Michelin. And dangerous time to allow a new keeper to to start under the fir- you know, first game of a new manager. You wonder if he, he puts in a good performance, Losel might be out of the team for the for the foreseeable so let's see what happens there but yeah that should be a really interesting game on Friday evening and then we've got four fixtures on Sunday so Lyngby play Silkeborg at lunchtime as do uh, Horsens against Alborg that's a massive game in the context of the relegation race so yeah two big lunchtime games in the afternoon we've got uh, Bromby against Viborg this is always a, a, a really fascinating fixture so keep an eye on that one and then FC Copenhagen play Norgeland first versus second whoever can come away f- with three points from that is going to be top of the league and you would say that uh, that would be a body blow to whoever loses that so keep your eye on that uh, and then the Monday night game AGF Ranners and all Yulin clash there I'm not expecting that one to be a classic necessarily. It feels like it's got a 1-0 on it. But having said that now, it's going to be 4-all. So enjoy that. Great to be back into the the, the thick of the action. 10 more rounds of this to, to enjoy. Uh, and then obviously the, the European playoff, got the cup final. So lots of stuff to look forward to as we head into the summer months. We're going to take a short interlude now. But coming up after the break, I am super, super excited to have Christian Volney on the show one of the OGs of Danish football. And it was a really fascinating conversation. So I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you after this. Welcome back to part two. And I'm delighted to be joined by Christian Volney, strategic director of Right to Dream and formerly of FC Copenhagen, FC Norgeland, TV2 and host of Football Ministeria, which I think I'm right in saying was the biggest podcast, biggest football podcast in Denmark. Christian, welcome to the show. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. You've had a really interesting journey in Danish football. Could you just talk a little bit about how you got into working in Danish football and how you found yourself now working at, at Right to Dream? Well, it's a long story because I'm, I'm not young anymore, but I started out when I was just a kid and I used to love football. And it's so, so far back in the days that there was no internet back then. Um, and I used to, there was a Danish football uh, newspaper that came out every Friday called Tipsblad. It was different back then from what it is today. And that's the, that was the only place you could get your fix if you really wanted to understand more about football. So every time it came out around lunchtime on Fridays, I used to skip school and then run to the store and then <laughs> buy it and, and suck everything I got out of it into me. And I used to 
on my school desk at school, I used to with a pencil update the league in the Danish first division with goal scores and everything until my parents got a ticket from the school because they had to clean that table. Um, but that's how it started. And later on, I got into the school of journalism um, and everyone around me, there were lots of brilliant people there. I don't know how I got in and all the people wanted to uh, expose governments or change the world. And I just wanted someone to pay me to watch football. Um, that was the plan all along. And when I ended the education, I went to Italy to live with my, my uh, future wife. And then suddenly TV2 called me and said they had some freelance jobs for me if I wanted to come home. And that's how it started. I did for eight years the national team and the Danish league and European football. Back then there was no, it wasn't like today where everything is on one channel and no one else. Back then they were sharing it. And then eight years later, TV2, came, FC Norsham came to me. It was a small club back then. I had never won anything, always struggling for relegation. But they had an idea they, they could change things. They could... They could do things off the pitch. My first day of work uh, was also the first day of work for Casper uh, Um and a lot of other people. And I was there for four years. Um, interesting times. Um, part of I was there and won the cup twice and won the championship. Um, and the club just kept developing from from there. I wasn't I wasn't the reason to where to why they're there today, but it, I was part of the first journey, and it was. That was an interesting um, experience, and I learned so much those four years. Uh, you think you know everything about football, and then when you start working inside a club, you understand that you know nothing um, of how things actually, everyday life is, and the strategies and plans and man management and the connection between the different departments of a club and academy work. And it's such a it's such a big world, and I don't think anyone will ever fully understand no matter how long time they spend in it, what it actually demands from people and, and how you can make people flourish. But I learned something. And um, I went to FC Copenhagen for a little bit more than three years to to help them reestablish the the job description back then was to reestablish the belief in their ambitions because at the time they were struggling, they were cutting down on the budgets um, to build a department to open to to start their um, FC Copenhagen TV um, production, which today has has grown to be what I would call a flagship within the, the business. Um, again, they did it without me. I was just there when we started it. Um, and then after that, I felt I don't know how to explain that. I felt tired of football and not the sport, but the business of football. Um, I needed a break, uh, and I went to do other kinds of work. I was still doing sports. I was doing, I was helping Olympic committees in Denmark or national federations to educate coaches or whatever they needed of, of, of help. And then suddenly um, a headhunter called me and he said, I think I need you to come and meet someone. I said, that's fine, but this is about football. And he said, it's not really football. And I said, well, is it wrong football or what do you mean? And he said, no, but you should meet this guy. I said, I'm not interested. No, thanks. And then a week later, he called me again. He said, you should really meet this guy. So I went and I sat down with a man called Tom Vernon, uh, who purchased FC Northland about some six, eight months before that. And after an hour with him, I remember I thought to myself, shit, you're not getting out of this one. Because <laughs> this guy is so different and, and his visions and his look upon football is just so different. And either you join him and help knowing that it's going to be difficult, or you will be a hypocrite and should keep your mouth shut for the rest of your life. So 
I joined him at that time and I've been there ever since. Um, now I'm just a consultant, which means that I can also work on other projects, World Cups, Euros and stuff like that. But that's the short version of the long story. And it was already too long. I can hear when I'm talking, but that's how I got to where I am today. Wow. Incre- I mean, incredible to to also come full circle on the, the FC Norgeland story, because obviously that, that first championship happened way before Right to Dream and and all of that. And to, to see the team now in first place, you know, with the youngest team, youngest squad in the in the league must be very pleasing that everything that Tom and yourself and everyone else at the at the club and the organization has put in place has started to bear some some pretty significant fruit. The, the strange thing about that young uh, profile is that it was never the goal to have a young team. It was never the ambition. It's the thing that a lot of people talk about, um, but it's just a consequence of what they want to achieve. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a consequence of the strategy that the team becomes so young, but that was never the goal in itself. Um, but there's a strong history and there's a strong storyline, and that's where the main attention has always been from outside. Uh, from the inside, it's never about age. It's just how it ended up doing what, what the club is doing yeah absolutely and I, I think that you know the addition of a perhaps not a veteran player but a more mature player like uh, Andreas Hansen was, was really part of what sort of turned things around from last season to this and uh, that probably goes under the radar for people outside of Denmark but it, it, it was certainly something that I noticed yeah if you if you like I said if you're part of an everyday life in a club you you start to understand the mechanisms and of course they're different from club to club depending on the culture and the strategy but in a club like Norseland Having older players is, is probably the hardest position you can have in that squad is being the older player because you one, one thing is you need to be at a certain level that has to be um, steady. You have to be one of the best players every single game. But you also have to be a person that can teach all the young players what they need to know to reach their level at the right speed. If they don't do that, the, the team will struggle. The team will not be ready to play because... Your talent will not do it for you. You have to be ready. You have to be mentally developed. You have to be in full understanding of what's necessary for you to succeed and also have the ambitions not to every second Sunday um, not show up and, of course, not physically but mentally. So the, the, the three or four established players in that squad have a huge responsibility. In long term, the vision is, of course, that those players should be someone who's been through what the young players are going through. So Emiliano Macondas is the first in if if I should write a dream scenario for that club in let's say eight years, it will be Mikkel Damsko, Victor Nilsson, Markus Ingvartsen, and and someone in, in that category, people who've been through the same education, who come back to finish their their careers, giving something back to the next generation, understanding what they're going through. But right now, since the club is young, um, players like Andreas Hansen and Kian Hansen are filling out those those roles in a very impressive way because they don't have that background. Um, they had to learn a lot in a short time and sell, give their own. Um, so it's it's a it's a system that can grow alone from the fact that it will be stronger when when people who's been through the same will come back and, and give something in return. Yeah, for sure. I'm look, looking forward to that. Um, right to Dream is obviously more than just FC Norgeland. It's uh, it's that the whole um, academy setups with the, the academy in Ghana, the academy in in Egypt, uh, and and in Denmark. How important was the uh, the creation of a second academy, a second African academy in Egypt to the, the the kind of the overall right to dream strategy? It's it's a step uh, because the goal has always been that it should be a global um, 
you can call it organization or movement or whatever whatever you want. Um, the core idea was always to create more opportunities for as many young people as possible. Um, and that is not limited by numbers or by borders. So it was always the plan, but it costs money. And, and um, at the same time, you, you want to give everything you have to, to the kids. You promised an education, you promised a football development. Um, so how do, you, how do you spend the money you're getting in transfers on opening new academies when you're still trying to make the ones you have the best possible versions of themselves? But when, when the Mansour family came in, they wanted to invest in this. They had the same vision for this project. So it's, it's, it was a, that was the game changer here. And it was, of course, obvious the first one, new one could be in, in Egypt where, where they're from, where, where they want to make a difference, um, where girls and boys should have that opportunity as well. And you look at Egypt and you look at the, the incredible amount of talent you have there. Um, so I have, an, I have a feeling that in a few years, Denmark and the Super League will see what that can mean. Um, but it's not going to be limited to that. You just can't open 10 academies at the same time because then you cannot make them um, fully uh, established when it comes to culture and, and strategies and philosophies. And also we have to understand everywhere, every time we go to a new country that there's a local culture you have, to, you have to mix into this and where you can learn. If you think you can just put the same model everywhere, then you're going to fail. So it has to be in a certain tempo. You cannot do it quicker but it's going to happen much faster now than it's been before because I think within a year, new plans will come out on a new academy and a new club somewhere, and then maybe in two years from that, one more. So I think within the next 10 years, it's, it's going to grow massively. Yeah, I think what's always been su- such a refreshing change for me about, about Right to Dream is that it really feels like it does have the best interests at heart of the kids that come through the academy and it's one of the one of the few examples of in football where someone isn't just trying to line their own pockets there's a that there's a bigger ambition here one of the statistics that has stuck in my mind and I think it was 95% but correct me if I'm wrong that 95% of graduates from right to dream either become pro footballers or get a college scholarship in the US it's it's around those numbers but the the ones that that do not achieve one of those it, there's always some kind of sad story behind um it can be a family issue. It can be a, it can be other things. But um, it's until kids are at the age of sixteen, it's not defined if they should go one way or the other. Um, so when you turn, once you turn sixteen, you can you can normally see who will have the, the, the who has the talent and the potential to to a career in football. And if that's not realistic, the academy work is upgraded so that they can go on a scholarship in the US and achieve a great education through their football. So football will always be the platform for them to achieve either one or the other. And then there are the ones that actually achieve both, go to the US and through school, get the education, but then also be drafted for the MLS afterwards and actually get a professional career. So it's actually possible to achieve both through through the US, but um, we aim for everyone to at least achieve one of them so that they can make a change and impact in the community they come from and and um, and also achieve their own life goals because when you meet those young people it's incredible how determined they are uh, how much they put in school how much they put on the training pitch in in Ghana first time I came there I was I was amazed to see them get up six in the morning go train have breakfast go to school have a short break train in the afternoon and then at night there's extra school for the ones that needs a little extra and that's how you understand what incredible people they can become when you see them put in the effort. Um, 
I've never done it when I was a kid, that's for sure. I wasn't even close to putting in anything compared to those young boys and girls. So, um, But the people training them, educating them, have the same passion. Um, and everything comes down to those people. Uh, the same with the coaches in in an academy in Denmark. It's also people that makes a difference. And that's not just in Norsham. It goes to any club that has success in academy. It's because of the people that put in so much effort and, and, and want those kids to succeed. For the kids who don't make it, into that 95% cohort or whatever. What does Right to Dream do to still support their ambitions? Well, some of them return later on. As uh, There's a few coaches that actually in, they never made it because, of course, they make it, but maybe they didn't make it all the way uh, as a professional or, or to the U.S., but some of them come to work as, as coaches if they have the mentality. Some, some you lose contact with because they, they maybe went a different way in their lives or, or, or whatever happened to them in their families. But, but some of them actually do come back, even if they never made any of the two uh, goals that were set up for them. And some of them are in the, in the system today. Uh, we have people, uh, roles that are kind of caretakers. Um, the, the kids that go to the US, uh, we have people there who look after them, make sure they're doing well in school and keep them connected because some go to California, some go to the east and west and north and south and someone needs to make sure there's still contact with everyone and that they have a social um social uh, platform uh, over there so there are different roles that you can have even if you didn't become a, a footballer yourself if you if you have the passion for it and if you want to so some of them actually come back in in roles like that fantastic i wanted to take it back to, to danish football and you mentioned your work on fc code tv and how the formation of that was quite important to to copenhagen getting back to to where they are it was actually a documentary i don't know if it was produced by fc copenhagen or by someone else but it was a documentary on thomas delaney with english subtitles that that's what got me into danish football in the first place well there you go Exactly. And I, and I wondered, in terms of trying to get people outside of Denmark interested in the league, do you think it's, do you think it's possible? As in, do you think, <laughs> do you think what I'm trying to do is, uh, is feasible? And if so, what is it that you love most about Danish football that you think people need to know? I love the point you're making. And the fact that we're having this conversation proves that there is something here that can attract people, that can win their hearts, even if you're not local. I think the Superliga and Danish football have it will never be a competitive compared to Bundesliga or, or the Premier League when it comes to football terms on the pitch. But there's there are stories here um, that can relate to anyone, um, especially the ones that normally follow big teams uh, in big leagues. The, the 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 system we have is is very open to our surroundings. Danish football, if you look at it in a bigger perspective, it's probably just a business case. To be honest, you have what. I think 400,000 people here in Denmark that uh, that would call themselves fans, real fans. But you have 12 clubs in the Superliga battling, trying to make a living from these 400,000 people. And it's not even split evenly there because Bambi probably has most and then Copenhagen has second most. So the rest are, are, are really fighting for their lives and their businesses on a very little... Um, they're, they're trying to feed from a very small field of, of crops here. Um, and that has forced the clubs to con constantly think, how can we make everyone interested in this? How can we make sure that no one loses interest in, in us? Um, which makes the clubs open to sharing, which makes the clubs open to sharing with 
people around them, but also each other. There's a lot of, in Danish football, there's a lot of uh, knowledge sharing between the clubs, even if they're competitors, they're still trying to help the league grow, uh, also on academy level. Um, so it's a very open league uh, for you when you come here. You can come visit the players, you can watch the trainings, you can even talk to them afterwards. Um, and then there's the element of surprise that I never stop. Uh, it never stops to amaze me in the Superliga. I've, I've, I've followed it since it was started in, what was it, 92? Um, and there's always a shock. There's, there's never something you can take for granted. Um, and to be honest, I don't think you'll see in the Premier You can see surprises in the Premier League, but if you compare this season in Denmark, it will mean that what Southampton would be first, two-thirds in the league, and Nottingham Forest would be third, and, and Man United would be in the bottom half. It's, you don't see things like that in other leagues, but you can see it in Denmark. And it doesn't mean that it's broken or it's wrong. It means that it's healthy. And it means that in Denmark, you still have that every given Sunday element, maybe in a stronger sense than you have elsewhere, but it's still a professional league. And if you come here, you feel that it's a professional league. When you go to the stadiums, it's not Sunday football. And some leagues probably would be that experience, but here you can actually feel that it matters and it's worth traveling for. And if you go to Copenhagen this season, you'll see that it's it's on a level that can compete with most European leagues um, from a fan perspective. But they're not number one, 20 points ahead. It's still a league where you have to play every Sunday to to get your points. And I just love it. I love this league. And I love every club that comes up and goes down. And, you know, the only, only thing I wish we could avoid once in a while was the bankruptcies because they really damage your club. But fortunately, it's not that often anymore. Yeah, I don't know whether it's recency bias, but is this the highest quality the league's ever been? And I also wanted to to find out, given you were around at the start of the Super League, how's the the league changed over time? Whether it's you know playing styles, popularity, uh, whatever it might be, it changes all the time. And but you only notice when you stop and and look back uh, because it feels like a natural flow. I think it's a general thing in football. If you stop and look ten years back, everything is different except there's eleven players from each team on the pitch. But in, in the Super League, it's probably more than, than in other leagues. When you look at the change, uh, the culture is what changed the most, the professionalism. You ask if it's now the strongest Super League ever, uh, probably not in a European context, uh, not in an international perspective. But if you look at where we are selling players to, which leagues, um, it's probably the strongest we've ever been. We're selling now directly to the biggest leagues, which hasn't been, it was always a goal, but it hasn't been a fact for years. It is now. Uh, the, the number of spectators when, when the Superliga was created the, the, the goal was to have 8,000 people as an average for every game and, and everyone was laughing at that uh, that's not realistic and now we have 10 so in those terms Superliga has never been stronger also if you look at the, the, the professionalism of the 12 clubs the, the, the smallest clubs are much closer to that level that you would hope for than they used to be so I think in, in many ways, the league is, is, is probably the strongest it's, it's ever been. But when I think back at when I started as a TV journalist in the late 90s or something like that, we used to be able to go in the dressing room with the cameras and do interviews. Uh, I saw people smoking in the dressing rooms. It was a completely different world. And it's, what, 25 years ago. Uh, yeah. Today, no one would ever say that's possible. So a lot of things change without actually, we actually notice um, that the, the now the, the way the the league association have very strong demands for teams that should play in the Super League, which means the stadiums have to be up to a certain standard, has to be a lot of facilities for fans, for sponsors. 
all these things we take for granted, but it's changed so much. Um, it gives the league a completely different um, impression and, and level. And it's it's really been, uh, Super League has been on a, a huge journey. And I, I don't see a league around me where the journey has been at the same speed, especially if you look at Norway, Sweden, they're not even close. Yeah, and that professionalism has a trickle-down effect. You know, you look at the likes of Helsingor and Vila in the first division, they're run like like proper teams in terms of player routines, player fitness, training, all of that stuff, analytics. Yeah, but they're looking, it's important because you're looking into your your food chain here. Um, mm. you, you cannot be just the 12. Uh, it, it, cannot, it has to be a... If you want football to live and you want that any given Sunday uh, story, which is so important for, for us as fans watching the league, um, you have to have a food chain where miracles can actually happen, where clubs mm. can accelerate through the leagues and, 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 and make it. So you need to make sure that the next level and the next level are also taking steps in the right direction. Um, we have a license system here when it comes to talent development, uh, academy systems, where even the clubs that don't have that much money and don't have the resources... But they still, there's still leaks. There's still a license system for them to improve all the things that they can improve, so that talent can also be developed in Helsingør and not just in FC Copenhagen, even if Copenhagen has a lot more money. And so there's a lot of thoughts going into the the, the full picture in, in Danish football when it comes to the clubs. And I think the work that's been done there by the league association over the years has been, when you look at it now, it's been the absolute right thing to do, and it's been an incredible work. Um, and the clubs that come up in the beginning, you'll feel, oh, there's a lot of demands here. There's a lot of things that we're being asked to do. But there's also a lot of help to get. And everyone makes it. No one is being left behind. So uh, I think it's a model that soon you'll see Sweden and Norway start adapting. I have a strong sense they'll do that. And it's because it works. It's been a good thing. When you were talking about your career in football, you, you didn't mention the podcast, but I wanted to ask you, you know, what did you most enjoy about doing football ministeriat? I think when I look back, because we never really, when we, when we started doing it, we just started doing it. There was never a plan. There was never a business case. There was no, we just, I worked with Lars for all the years in FC Copenhagen, who is the captain and I was handling the media. We knew each other from before. And we always had that idea that when we were not, sort of locked down by whoever we were employed by, we would start doing something where we could just talk about it the way we wanted to. And that the, uh, we always missed, and this is, I should be careful what I'm saying now because I don't want to step former colleagues uh, on their toes, but to be honest, the way football media is today and has been for a few years, maybe now it's, it's starting to get better, but for many years, it's always been about the click, it's been about the headline, um, if you're a football fan and you just want to get to know more about football, it was actually easier before internet, like when people like me went to the to the supermarket and got that newspaper. And maybe I didn't care about Argentinian football, but that's what I got that week. And then I read that and I understood that. But today, internet sometimes just makes you more stupid, to be honest. Um, it's become a shouting contest and media just count clicks. So we were kind of like, where... Can we do something where people can get to know what we experienced and how we see it and put things that happens now in the perspective of our world and have a tone that is like we were sitting in a dressing room and just talking like for ourselves. And that was the only th thoughts behind it. There was nothing more. Uh, we picked up uh, Stuart, our producer, along the way. He was an intern at the place that we started doing it. And suddenly he, he was part of it as well. And 
it changed the format changed as we went along um and suddenly we were the most downloaded podcast in in, in sports in denmark and we never aimed to be we never understood why but that's just how it ended up um so it was it was a journey for us as well um and it was incredible to understand how many people suddenly had an interest in it and when you do podcasts and people listen to it, it's not just something you hear it's something you invite home and there's a huge amount of of trust in that there's a huge amount of of recognition when let's say a normal person has four hours a week to spend on that where even when you cut the grass or you do your gym work or you go walk the dog wherever and then you pick the four hours of company you want and to be part of those four hours is a uh, for us it was uh, mind-blowing when we understood how much it mattered to a lot of people how everyone intervened with it when we were walking down the street or Lars is on TV and he used to be uh, on the Danish national team for 10 years and when people stop in the street the first thing they want to talk to him about is, is the podcast um, so it, it it became something much more than we ever thought it would be and in the end it probably also scared us a bit so we needed a break yeah it's, it's a really interesting point that certain podcasts tend to find their way into certain times of your life so I have a particular podcast that I listen to always on the school run in the morning and that becomes part of my day it's like you invite someone home it's like you know you're part of that company and, and when we started we decided it's just the three of us it, at first it was the two of us and then Stuart came along and everyone told us we were mad because people are going to get tired of that you need guests you need something new we went the other way we said no we should, people should know what they're getting um and now i see everyone doing it so with with podcasts it was a new media and 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 no one knew people thought they knew but now we know more and there's probably a lot we don't know yet but um it when you invite someone home you want to know who they are and you want to know which kind of company you're you're tapping into uh, people should be very picky with which podcast they listen to um for a reason and apparently a lot of people thought that the three of us um, were either good company or something you could laugh at. Um, maybe both. Yeah, and the, the amazing thing with podcasts, unlike um, TV or other mediums, is that people vote with their feet, right? You see in real time how many people download and listen to something and if what you're saying is, is interesting to them or not. Yeah, and there were, you could see the numbers. Some people count how many times were my podcast downloaded. And that makes sense. If you, if you subscribe, then automatically you download when it, when it comes out. We always looked at the number, how many listened it through, how many has actually went all the way through it, because that was the only number. We, we didn't have any commercial interest. We didn't have to care about the numbers. We were just interested in if people actually listened to it. Mm. And I think it was 96% um, of the downloads that actually listened to it, which is a number that I've never heard anyone else have. Uh, and that just made us, yeah. It was, and it even reached the UK at some point. It was in Danish, but at some point we were headlined in, in the UK because of uh, we did a special where we visited our first legend, a uh, former striker called Søren Andersen, um, the Mandarin. And he uh, he talked about Sean Dyche uh, eating worms at training. And one of the listeners translated that and sent it to a UK podcast. And then they brought it. And then another podcast brought it. And then suddenly, uh, at that time, Sean Dyche was actually mentioned as a new English national team coach. And he was asked at a press conference in the Premier League about him eating worms. And it was it was absolutely mad. Absolutely <laughs> mad. 
Uh, I and I, I fully believe that story is true, by the way. So no, it is. If John says it, it's true. <laughs> He's a legend. Remember that situation aside. What's the what's the kind of craziest football situation you've been in? Whether it's you know an angry angry manager or uh, something that's gone wrong, or like what's the the craziest place you found yourself? Uh, there's been a few, um, and some of them are not funny, uh, but uh, you learn a lot from them. Um, there was the one that will always stick with me and and has just become part of how I see a lot of things, not just work-related, was the time in, in Norseland when one of our players was uh, struck by lightning on the pitch and, and died there. And was uh, fortunately, he's, he's with us today, but he, they had to amputate one of his, his legs. Um, what we went through in those weeks as a group um, is something that will never leave you, and, and you learn so much from it, seeing people strong some people just fall apart and and seeing some rise and and take responsibility for the others and um and that all came back to the reason i know that it it will never leave me is because last last summer when there was a euros in denmark and christian erickson um well basically died on the pitch as well it was like a flashback i was in the it was in the stadium and it just it was like i was back 10 years earlier with jonas and richter and um i immediately started thinking as soon as i knew christian was okay i started thinking okay what happens now and i went to see the the national team the the morning after and casper human came to me he looked me in the eyes and said did you have a flashback yesterday with the owner tenant i said yeah it's exactly how I felt. he felt exactly the same the leader of the national team in denmark Kashinarke, was also in northland at that time so there were people there who, who had an experience. And I believe that was maybe also part of Denmark handling the Ericsson episode so well, is that these guys felt like I felt that they had a knowledge and experience that um, that had changed the way they look at things. And, that, and know, you know how to react when you're in a situation like that. You know what can come out of positives. You know what, what are the dangers, where, where should you be aware. Some people look like they're okay, but they're going to crack in a few days because we've seen it happen before. Um, and how can you support the person himself? How, what what does he need? What does his family need? Um, those things are just that situation is probably the one that changed the most for me as a private person. Uh, of course, work related, there was a lot to look after. We were even Cristiano Ronaldo was contacting us to hear how this <laughs> this player was doing. It was incredible the amount of attention when football the football world is a family when it comes down to things like that. You really experience that it, it matters. Um, we were getting shirts from everywhere around the world with clubs. Hope so. When he woke up in the hospital in his room, that was about a month later. There were shirts hanging everywhere in his room from clubs and, and countries that he never heard about. It was all, everyone just sent him uh, messages, and so I guess he has a pretty good collection today. You want to send if if he, if he looked it through, but um, I think that will be the episode for me that that stands out as the as the biggest one, not for. You know, not because it was a World Cup or anything, it was a reserve game, but what came after it and what I learned myself, that will be the one. Yeah, wow. I can imagine that's that's incredibly powerful. One of the things you were saying earlier was that you you know, you've been into football since a really early age. Was there a was there a team that you followed? Uh, I, I know that I know that you've been drawn to the wrong side of North London, which we <laughs> but, can But that's that's the funny thing, is that I'm I'm a football fan myself and I fully respect and understand what 
what everyone thinks and believes and and it's bec it becomes an identity for people and after the internet came it's become probably more than just your personal identity it's something that you shared and then other people connect you with it and it puts you in a box and my box has always been Tottenham. it's always been um uh, i saw my first first game in 89 uh, the stadium went with us on a school trip to london in the public school in denmark you go i think it's in the eighth or ninth grade you go on a trip with the class Ours was in London, and then Saturday came, and I just wanted to watch some football with one of the other boys in the class, Mikkel, and teacher said, you can't, you can't go anywhere. And um, Saturday came, and we had some hours off, we just, we just left. And we looked in the newspaper, where's the closest stadium, who's playing, and there was Queen's Park Rangers and Tottenham playing at home that day. So it was, we went for Tottenham. And it wasn't more complicated than that. Uh, and I went there and it was the old White Hart Lane and Gary Lineker scored. It was against Chelsea at the time. Chelsea was an elevated team going up and down. Paul Gascoigne was carried off as always. It was 1-1. But that's where it started for me. And I've been following them ever since. And before, like I said, there was no internet. So I was trying to buy books about the club so I could learn more. And there was no internet fora where you could go and share with other people. Um, so... That's how it started for me, and it's been like that all the time. But when it comes to Denmark, I've been a fan of many clubs, and no one understands that. And people can call other people a club prostitute or whatever they want. But I know from myself that when you're part of a project, you become a fan of that project. It's it's quite simple. It's the same when you see a player change clubs, and people say, oh, you should be from this club. You can't go to that club, and you, you will always be a fan of this club. And it, you can be a fan of more clubs. You can be. Um, but it's hard to understand if you haven't tried it yourself. Uh, if you, it's not many clubs in the world who can live up to the expectations that fans of, of them actually have. Um, I don't think I know any. So if you're a fan of Brambu or Inter Milan or Boca Juniors, if you have a week inside the club, I think you'll, you'll learn that it's probably not what you thought. It's not what you hoped. But that's the beauty of being a fan, that you, you can allow yourself to believe your club is everything you want it to be for the lifelong support you give it um and no club is the same so for me it's it's been a journey when it comes to that that i've loved more than one club in denmark and i've never not loved the club that i leave um and fans most fans cannot understand that and i'm not trying to on internet when someone writes it it's fine with me um <laughs> but the only club i ever you know, I had a lifelong relationship with was, was Tottenham, and that's probably because it's the only one of those clubs that I haven't actually been part of and that I haven't seen from the inside. Because <laughs> I don't think many clubs would survive that check from from a fan. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think that's I think that's part of what what I love about Danish football is that I don't have an affiliation in the same way I do with uh, with, with Arsenal in in England. You can be taken in by the the stories, the individual circumstances. Like I'm at the moment, I'm you know loving what's happening with Norgeland, loving what's happening yeah. with Viborg. Yeah, and and also remember that in 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 England, it's a huge story when a guy comes up like um, what was his name, the, the top scorer in Leicester, um, Vardy. Yeah, Vardy. So that was he used to do. He was what, brick, some making bricks or something like that. In Denmark, we have those stories everywhere. Uh, <laughs> Baker is becoming pros, and you know it's it's just something you can relate to. Um, and, and there's a lot of local attachments to most clubs here. And, and what, for me, an important part of the Super League is it unites more than it separates, for me. Because our rivalries here are not based on religion or politics, like you see in other countries, where it's something you can never overcome. It's, it's something that is doomed to be 
a conflict. Our rivalries are built on you either geographical uh, things that you're from the same city or the same region or something historical, um, which I really appreciate because it's not really something that needs to separate to the to the level where you cannot have a Christmas together if you're in a family or something like that. And for me, that's important. I really appreciate that in the Super League that we're never further apart than you can work together and have a laugh the day after. Um, and I think that makes it also easier to like the league and to understand the league, that it's, it's a welcoming league. It's not something where you, you have to be either one or the other. Yeah. Certain teams in Italy, like I can, I can think of Inter and, and Milan, both describe each other as cousins. So, like, there's a healthy rivalry, but it's never to the point where they hate each other. Mm. And you know, you get people in the same family supporting different teams. I travelled a lot in Italy because of my wife, and I've been to the, I've been to the derby in, in, in Milan. And uh, you're right, you can have fans of both teams in the stadium. It's, it used to be a political uh, thing, but it's not really anymore because it used to be Milan was the the, the left wing and Inter was the right wing, but then Berlusconi came to Milan and he was a right winger, but they still loved him because they were winning. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a, there is tradition in Milan that separates them. It's not something more, but you have places in Italy where it comes down to politics and there's nothing you can do. If these teams play each other in the third league, you'll still have a war in the in train station. And, you know, those are the rivalries that for me is hard to, to work with because you can never change. It's the same with religion. It's what are you going to do? Uh, mm. It's just football, but it becomes more when when that thing is involved. You, you talked about the closeness between players and fans in the in the Superliga. H- how much of that do you think is down to the fact that the players in the Superliga aren't earning the sort of money that Premier League players are that give them the the ability to to retire at thirty for the rest of their life? You know, people like players in the Superliga know that for the most part, when they retire, they still need a they still need a career. And do you think that grounds them in a way that that makes people connect closer to them? I think it used to. I think it's really a big part of the story about the Superliga is exactly what you're mentioning there, that everyone on the pitch was someone you could relate to. And I think it's changing a bit. I think uh, a lot of players are now leaving the Superliga to have a career abroad, which means they're going to make a lot more money and it's become a realistic target for most of them. But um, we spoke about our podcast um some a little bit ago, and I remember that we used to we wanted guests who were part of that time where Superliga was kind of that's where I'm getting to. Superliga mm-hmm. is what it is, and some of the players there spent 15 years in the Superliga, and that was fine. They spent 15 years in the same club, and that was fine. You don't see that anymore in the same in the same way. If you're good enough to play 15 years for the same club, you're probably also good enough to to move abroad, and then that's what you're gonna do. So I appreciate that time of history with the Superliga in the 90s, probably more than than what we see now in, in that context. Um, but there is still, of course, a strong element in the Superliga that you are closer to the players. Even the foreigners that come here, uh, who will stay here three years, four years, you still they still feel that they have to be part of, of, of their surroundings. Um, even if they're very ambitious young men, like let's say a goalkeeper from Poland in FC Copenhagen, um, who has a very, let's say, a very ambitious personality, he still connects with the fans. He still understands that he needs to be something for them, whether they like it or not, but he plays a role. And I think that's the most important thing in Superliga. Everyone wants to get involved in it. Everyone has a responsibility to play a part in the Superliga. You can't just come and sit back and then leave. 
Um, and I feel even foreign players understand that here. Um, so I think that, that helps the Superliga to, to, to maintain that thing that became, for me, a big thing in the 90s, but still today in somehow, some ways still exist. That they, they have to be part of what we like about the Superliga. They kind of just take care of their own. Yeah, I hope that can continue for some time, sometime still. I wanted to ask you about uh, a couple of things that are more recent developments in the Superliga, specifically the advent of VAR and the advent of the, the European playoff, i.e. you know, seventh place playing third or fourth place. What, what do you think about those two things and have they positively impacted the league? The, the thing about the seventh position playoff place against number four, I think... If you asked me 20 years ago, I would probably be a very angry man and, and, and start shouting about how unfair it is and that it's not right. But I've also, through all the years I worked in football in Denmark, I also realized that it cannot all be perfect. It has to be what's best for the most. And when you look at what this uh, structure we have now has brought, because it's been, to be honest, it's been incredible to see how people react to uh, around 19, 20, 21, 22, because you, you're reaching the point where you have to separate into top six and bottom six. It's given so much to this league. And also the top six playoffs, You, it prepares the players in a completely different way in their development because you're playing top teams every week. And I think it benefits the national team. I think it benefits their potential for a future career in, in, in bigger leagues. Um, and if the price I have to pay for that is that once a year, number four plays number seven to get the most, kind of, kind of say in a nice way, but to get the least important, I mean, because it's really hard to qualify for anything through that ticket. It's the lowest ticket. It's the fourth class ticket. It's not business class. It's behind in the train where you have to fight your way up. Um, if that's the price I have to pay for all the other things, I'm okay with that. Even if it's one year is unlucky for my team or lucky for your team, I'm okay with that. And when four out of five ends up with number four winning against number seven, it makes it easier for me to swallow that pill. So I think, like I say, it's never going to be perfect, but it's probably the right solution for me. The way, when I look at what it's given, it's only that one day a year where you say, oh, okay, maybe if number seven wins, is that okay? But I think it has given the league a lot to have that system. And if you don't have that playoff, then relegation well, I mean, this year, if, if Horsens wins the first game against Allborg, then why should we watch the rest of the relegation playoff if there's no seventh position to, to play for? With VAR, I was for it in the beginning. Then I had a crisis. Now I've accepted the fact that it's here. I'm just sorry that it's not being used to its full potential. Um, I still feel that it's not... I was, I was told when they came that it's going to make football more fair. And I still don't feel that. And that's a problem for me, to be honest. One of the things that, that's dawned on me, particularly seeing seeing VAR at play in the Premier League, I think to an extent it's it's still true in, in the Super League too, is that it's being used almost like a goal prevention system rather than its intended purpose. You know, almost every goal gets checked on VAR now. And I'm not sure that that makes for a, a good experience for players or for or for fans. Now, it's, uh, my, my biggest problem is that I feel it's taken a lot away from the referees. We have to understand, because this is a, a major um, foundation in, in, in football, is that referee has always been the highest authority, authority in the stadium. It's always been like that. Referee can call off a game. Referee can say game is not going to be played. Referee is the highest authority. 
And now we have a system where he can be called out uh, by his teacher to say, oh, maybe you may have to come out here. And then basically he's more or less forced to follow whatever advice he got. Um, if he made a call on the pitch and if he feels he, I, I love VAR as if you haven't seen something as a ref and VAR sees it, that's fine. Let's use it. But if the ref has seen something and he made a call, then leave it with that unless it's absolutely wrong. But we've seen a lot of cases where it's been, if not 50-50, then 40-60. And they still call him out because he went for the 40 and not for the 60. But then why do we have a ref? So that's my problem. And then when you see VAR intervening in all these things, and then they still make wrong decisions, that's where I feel we have the biggest problem. That if you cannot trust that they're actually bringing justice, then why should they be there? And I would understand if there are coaches or players or fans that feels it's not bringing full justice. I can understand that. And as long as we have that, I feel it's a problem. I think that's uh, very well put. And yeah, I agree. And I think also to an even greater degree, the linesmen have become redundant. Half the time they don't even flag because they know it's going to be checked. Now you're getting me started because when you see those offsides and everyone can see there's an offside, especially a linesman that is trained to be on a very high level, it can be a meter offside, but they still leave the flag down because yeah, Vi is going to catch it anyway if it was offside. So you, leave, you, you let the attack go and then a player goes for the goal and a defender comes and struggles. What if that defender goes down and tackle that injures them both? What, why are you letting it? Because if you're not whistling, then they have to play that situation till the end. What if the yeah. goalie comes out, sprains something, or crashes into the player? Why do you leave those situations when you know there's an offside? I, I can't stand it. I, I, it's just for me, it's incredible. And it's just, it's at any level. It's not a Super League problem. You see it everywhere. Um, it's become kind of a security thing with the VAR, but the linesmen are there to raise that flag when they know there's an offside and it protects the players for a situation that can be dangerous. Um, so honestly, I'm with you. It's ridiculous. Taking VAR out of the equation, if you could change anything about um, about Danish football, whether it's a rule, whether it's uh, something to do with the stadium experience, if you could change any one thing to make it better, what would you do? Oh, that's a tough one because I really love the Superliga. I really feel that it's moved in the direction where I can relate to most of it. Um, if I should, I would, to be honest, I would consider the the calendar year uh, season. Um, there was change in Denmark many years ago to follow the European leagues because we felt, that was the explanation back then, we felt that it would be better for the European Cup uh, with Danish teams there. At the time, remember, Bombay was in the semi-final. Mm. Danish teams were going far and we're thinking how can we tweak it so that we get that small advantage um, but looking back I would seriously consider to play a year calendar here um, at least try it at least have the discussion from let's say March to October whatever uh, to get the best months out of the Danish year uh, it's, it's really sad that once the weather gets the nights are longer the weather is fine that's where we stop and then we, we force matches into snow and frost and shit weather where people have to come to the stadium anyway and the pitches are shit. Um, I think I understand everything, the reasoning behind it is as it is. And I also understand that um, people are on vacation during the summer and maybe they won't come. But there's a lot of people who don't come in the winter as well because there's a snowstorm or because it's just cold. I feel we're missing out on something. And, and when I look at Sweden and Norway, who still plays calendar year, they're doing better in Europe than we are. So so the argument of being better in Europe doesn't really 
for me makes sense right now. So it's more of a question what's best for for us. And I would like that discussion because I keep feeling in the summer that we could be using these months to something instead of throwing the best months away. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting suggestion. And also, uh, it, it's kind of around the summer when the key moments are happening in terms of European qualifying. And so to be at the point where, where you, you know, the teams are well into their season and in their groove at a point where you're playing other teams who are, have only just begun pre-season in many cases, like that could be a big advantage. Yeah, you look, you look at, we used to say that if we, if we don't play the European calendar, then if Danish teams qualify for Europe over the winter, then we're going to start from nothing and we don't have a chance. But you see Midtjylland against Sporting Lisbon, it's not like they had a huge chance anyway. Um, and Swedish teams, Norwegian teams are actually doing okay after winter breaks. It's true that, of course, your season is not going well, but you have a lot of time to prepare for that single European match if, if, if you want to. Um, so I don't see those arguments anymore as effective as they used to be because when I heard them back then they all made sense but I just feel now when we actually know what we're talking about we've tried this for many years now if is it worth having that discussion I think it is uh, I think a lot of people imagine you coming here in the late in the end of June as a as a Englishman to visit the Super League and you have a day a full summer and a night where it doesn't get dark before 11 Imagine how you could enjoy that day with your Danish friends going to the stadium and after you go out and it's still warm and it's light. And I just feel we're missing out on something that could make Danish football even more special because you wouldn't you wouldn't see those nights anywhere else. So yeah. I, I feel we're missing out on something that could be good for everyone else, except maybe for the for the clubs themselves in in whatever strategies they have. But it's not all about them. It's built on what we think as fans. It's built on what we can give and take from from that league and if you as an Englishman are willing to come here um, it means that there's there's something worth traveling for here so why not fully expand it and, and do something about it um, I think you would it would be easier for you to bring your your UK mates on that trip end of June than it is in March definitely true because I've, I've tried both and it's yeah. a lot easier to get yeses for the <laughs> well, summer there you go the MLS obviously have a huge marketing budget to play with, but it feels like they're trying to own being the summer league that people can watch when the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga is finished. And maybe the Superliga could could credibly compete in terms of quality if they were to go down that route. You have a point because the Danish league, I think is the second most expensive league in the world when it comes to TV rights. If you mention it from, you know, how many people we have and so on. Well, I think only Premier League is more expensive. It's We have an incredible TV deal here and we have it for a reason. It's because the league has a strong local connection. That's why it's worth those money. TV companies don't pay that for fun. It's actually worth it. But the international rights, as far as I remember, has always just been pulled out. It's not like there's a there's a country where TV station says, we want to buy specifically the Danish league and exclusively have it. So it's kind of pulled out. You can buy highlights or whatever. But the, the Monday night game, which is not very popular in Denmark, but... It's at a time where there's no other matches in, in Europe, really. Um, there's the Premier League game that starts after the Super League game is over. So that game has actually had a lot of interest from Asia and wherever because there are no other games to watch at that time if you want to watch football. So I think you have a point. If you play through the summer as the only league uh, or the best league available on that market, it might have a commercial value for the clubs to to sell as an international TV right. I think you have a point there where market has changed throughout the years where that wasn't relevant 20 years ago, but 
it is now, and you can see that from the Monday night game that that has a lot of traction in, for example, Asia. And it might be, I don't know, gamblers or whatever watching it, but it does have interest because there's nothing else if you want to watch football than the Super mm-hmm. League game Monday night. The summer league movement starts here. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, it happened here. It started here. I've got one final question. I know that you've been very generous with your time, so thank you. But um, g- given you're closer to this than most, I wanted to just ask a question about FC Norgeland. And they're obviously top of the league at the moment, finished ninth last season and sold arguably, you know, one of the best two players at the club, perhaps, in Simon Adingra. What's been responsible for the turnaround in fortunes? And do you think that even with a managerial change mid-season, even with a big sale in January, do you think there's enough in the tank to, to bring the title to Farham? I have no doubt that FC Norton can do what they need to do. The, the, what they cannot do is limit the potential of FC Copenhagen. Uh, you have to look at that team now and say, how good are they? Can they become better? If they win all their games, even if they don't win let's say the two against FC Norsham, they can still be champions in FC Copenhagen and there's nothing Norsham can do about that. But if you're asking me if Norsham can have the quality to keep their average of, let's say, two points per game, the answer is yes. Um, I don't see anything there. You can look at all the stats and numbers and say, okay, so they, they didn't win all their games yet in this spring, but they actually put in the performance that was necessary to win those games. And then you can always talk about marginals and post and lucky punches from opponents. But as a coach, you have to look at, are we performing? And I think the coach in Notion say, we are, we can see that, maybe even better than in, in the autumn. So I think Notion has the quality to do it, but they cannot limit FC Copenhagen for having a bigger possibility or bigger potential. They can reach through their coaching staff and the work they do. So I think it's impossible to call now. I think right now, some months ago, people were underestimating Copenhagen and, and what they could reach. And now they're underestimating what Norsham can do. And that's how we all look at football from the outside. And it's about momentum and, and you feel, oh, this is definite to happen. But it's not. Um, for me, it's a two-horse race. Uh, and this weekend, there's an important game coming up. Um, but uh, I, I, I know how they work there. I know the people working there. And I've never seen any... Um, anyone being nervous in Norsham last season when when they were almost relegated. I didn't see anyone doubt the plan. I didn't see anyone started looking different at each other. Um, and that's the key for success is that you know what you're doing and you believe in it and you keep doing it. And that club knows exactly what it's doing. Fantastic. Well, there's there's plenty of twists and turns to come in the season. But yeah, really looking forward to the game this weekend. And Thank you so much for, for giving up your time to talk. I loved it. And I, I was honored to be part of this. And I just want to, in the end, if I can, I think it's great what you're doing. I love hearing it. Um, and I I admire you for doing it. And I hope you'll find it worth for you to do as well, that you don't suddenly lose three years of your life and say, what did I do this for the Danish League? But I listened to the first episode you did with uh, Liam, who lives here and works yeah. with Danish football. And... If you listen to that today, if anyone listening to this haven't done it, I would recommend that you do it because, of course, he knows Danish football. He works with it. But everything he says in that podcast turns out to be wrong when he guesses. It's incredible. Every single guess here. And that, for me, is the Super League in a nutshell. That even us who believes we know, we're still surprised. Everything he said, every single point is wrong. Just go and listen to it. I love the Super League. I'm going to go back and listen to it. I know that I predicted Alborg to finish third. I think he was worse than you, to be honest. <laughs> Fantastic. No, thank you so much and appreciate the kind words. And yeah, let's do it again in the future if you, if you have time. I'll be listening until then. 
if you would like to support the podcast and the website and all the stuff that is going on at Football in Denmark, please head on over to Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash football in Denmark, and you can become a Patreon for the price of a coffee a month. And that helps keep everything ticking along here at Football in Denmark Towers. A huge thank you to Christian Volney for today. And thank you to you for listening. Catch you next time on Danish Dynamite.